Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. I'm Corbin, and today we are reading from Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. <clears throat> Thank you, Tori and Pete and Jeannie for leading us in worship through song. Thank you, Corbin, for leading us in worship through the reading of the scriptures. And we're going to continue this posture of worship um, by praying. So if you would, join me as we pray to our Father together. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you that while we were enemies of you, you died for us. We thank you that you are always looking at us in love. We thank you that you are with us when we see it and you're with us when we don't see it. We thank you that you are guiding us in the highs, in the lows, in the confusion, in the darkness. We thank you that you are preparing a place for us. We thank you that you are with us. Thank you that we do not have to worship in a spot. We can worship in spirit and in truth. God, we thank you that you are the bread of life. And when we eat, we will never be hungry again. We thank you that you are the living water and that when we drink, we will never be thirsty again. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that you are the good shepherd of our souls. Father, we praise you for all of those things. And also, Lord, we humbly ask that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. We ask that you would tune our taste buds to long for the banquet of heaven. 
We ask that you would quiet our restless hearts. You would draw our wandering minds back to you so that we may delight in your presence. God, you promise us eternal life, not for later, but for right now, life and life abundant. So Lord, we ask that you fill us with yourself. You fill us with your spirit. And I ask that the, our, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we may comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and breadth of your love that surpasses all knowledge. Father, it's in you that we live and move and have our being. And so we give ourselves to you, not just our time, not just our thoughts, but also our bodies, our souls, our lives, everything, Lord. We throw it at your feet. And we pray all of these things. Through your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, who we know is praying for us on our behalf. Amen. Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. My name is Parker. I'm one of the pastors here at Ankeny Gospel Church. And we are in a three-week vision series of who we are, what kind of disciples we are becoming. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he responded with a two-fold answer. Perhaps you know it. Love God and love others. It's not one is the first greatest and then, you know, this is the second best. It's they're both the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Well, it's a twofold commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything in you, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, everything. And also greatest is love your neighbor as yourself. Consider the needs of others is more important than the needs of yourself. Put the needs of others above the needs of the self like actual people that you see and that you know, that is your neighbor. So what is the greatest commandment? To love God and love others. In other words, that is the goal of discipleship, right? That is the telos, that is the end, that is the aim of discipleship, is to become a person who loves God with everything in you and loves your neighbor as yourself, who loves God with everything and loves everyone at the same time selfless love, which is ultimately willing the good of another. That's the goal, that's the end. Become a person of love, of God-filled, selfless love. Love God, love others. Now, the question is, how does somebody become that? How do you become a person of love? Because when you meet Jesus, you're not just automatically zapped with love, right? That would be nice, but that's not how it works. How do we become that? The short answer is discipleship, right? following Jesus. We're gonna talk about the word discipleship here in a moment and the process of formation, but for now the question is, how does somebody become a person who loves God with everything and loves their neighbor as herself? The answer is discipleship. But as we saw last week, we can become bad disciples. We can actually claim to be disciples of Jesus, but in reality deceive ourselves, create God in our own image, become disciples of our own God, and then become disciples who are passive, needy, consumeristic, exhausted, isolated, anxious, and continually filled with fear, rather than becoming a disciple of Jesus and continually being filled with the fullness of God, overflowing in love of God, bearing fruit in every good work, and foreshadowing eternity. What kind of disciple do you wanna become? So the question isn't if you're a disciple, the question is what kind of a disciple are you? More importantly, what kind of a disciple are you, or who are you following as a disciple? 
And at Ankeny Gospel Church, our vision is to become disciples of Jesus, but become disciples of presence, formation, and mission. Last week we talked about presence. What does it mean to become a disciple of presence? We want to become disciples who seek the presence of God in everything we do. We want to become disciples of formation so that we're formed in our thoughts and our words and our deeds to look more like Jesus. And we want to become disciples of mission who live selflessly and sacrificially, not out of our abundance, but out of our sacrifice for the renewal of the city because God is at work in renewing all things to himself. Are we gonna become disciples who seek the presence of God, are formed in the image of Jesus, and live on mission for the renewal of the city? And what we talked about last week as well is that if you only have one of these, or, or two of these, it's not complete. If you have presence and formation without mission, then you'll become spiritually selfish, right? I have the presence of God, and I'm being formed in my equipping hour classes, and my study, and my practices, but you're not living on mission, you're just gonna become, a, we're gonna become a holy huddle, spiritually selfish. If we have formation and mission but no presence, we're being formed, we're renewing our minds, we're surrounding ourselves with community, and we have mission, go, 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 but we have no presence of God, we will become cynical evangel evangelists, and mission will be an obligation rather than a love. And if we have presence and mission with no formation, we're seeking the presence of God in everything you do, we're filled with the fullness of him who fills all in all, and we're going out, we're going out, going out, but we're not, we don't have any mission we're not forming our minds, I'm sorry, no formation, we're not forming our minds, we're not forming our hearts, we're not forming our desires, then we'll be shallow servants, just going out with no foundation. We'll be brainless zealots. So we're in this series that we're gonna be repeating every year, by the way, of presence, formation, and mission. Last week we looked at the presence of God. Psalm 105.4 says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face or presence always, always. The first question we have to ask in our discipleship is who or what are we seeking? Are we seeking what I want? Are we seeking my own God, my own idols? Or are we seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness, his presence? Are we listening enough and slowing down enough to hear the Spirit say to you that in Christ you are the presence of God? Because that's the claim of the New Testament so that we can say with Paul, I'm praying without ceasing, and that in everything I do, doesn't matter if I'm eating, doesn't matter if I'm drinking, whatever I do, I'm doing it all for the glory of God, constantly aware of his presence. Our desire is to become disciples of presence, formation, and mission. Last week was presence, this week is formation. Our text for today is Romans 12, one through two. And uh, if you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn there. Romans 12, verses one and two. I'm gonna read it again. Um, so if you want to follow along, this will be our, our text for this morning. Romans 12, Paul says this, therefore, all right, I'll pause right there real quick. If you've been at AGC for any amount of time, you know that whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is therefore? Therefore. Ah, yes, it's working. Formation, see, that's what we're doing, formed over and over and over again. Anyway, what is therefore, therefore? Paul just waxed elephant for 11 chapters on good, awesome, amazing theology. One of the most beautiful theological treaties ever written is the book of Romans. And he basically says this, we are far worse than we can imagine in our sin, in our selfishness, in our darkness. And Christ loves us more than we can actually comprehend. He knows you more than you know yourself and he loves you more than that as well. So then he gets on to like the more practical stuff, uh, the, uh, the um, 
Like orthodoxy, right, teaching always leads to orthopraxy, right, living. And so that's exactly what he does here. And so he says, therefore, because of all this orthodoxy, because of these 11 chapters of theology, brothers and sisters, verse one, in view of the mercies of God, we're looking at the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this, this is your true worship. Verse two, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We are always becoming someone. We are always becoming someone. It's tempting to think that when you encounter the presence of God, when you're saved, when you're converted, when you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, when you, when, you are, when you put your faith in Jesus, it's tempting to think that when that happens, God just zaps you immediately with all, all the fruits of the spirit, all the patience that you want, all the everything, but we know from experience that that doesn't happen. Like, all of a sudden you were impatient or you were struggling with the sin and all of a sudden you get saved and it's like, whoa, I've... I've never struggled with patience ever again, right? Sometimes we think about that, but in reality, it's just like, that's not the process at all. Now, I know some, some people, and in fact, some of your guys' stories, is you were walking a certain way in life, and you met Jesus, and immediately, those patterns, they changed. Maybe it was swearing, maybe it was uh, drinking, maybe it was whatever it was. All of a sudden, you meet Jesus, and you're like, no more. That's possible. That's absolutely possible. But the transformation of the heart the intentions of your heart, that takes a lifetime. Your secret thoughts, taking captive, Paul says, every thought and making it obedient to Christ, whew, that's a long, long process. The desires that you have of your will, of your soul, these things take time. And the temptation is to think that, oh, well, I'm a Christian now, so all I'm doing is just waiting till I die so that I can, eternal life can take effect which by the way is not biblical. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts right now. Eternal life is not about the quantity of your life as much as it is about the quality of your life. It, Christ in you is the hope of glory. You are currently the temple of God. And so my point is this. Becoming like Jesus is a long process called formation. It's a long process called formation. When you meet Jesus, are there things that are just completely changed immediately? Yes, and when you meet Jesus, is all your sin gone? No. Are the desires of your heart tuned to God's desires? No. Are your thoughts tuned to God's thoughts? No. That's a process that takes time called formation. It's a lifetime of decisions, of prayer, of meditation, of study, of relationships, of mistakes, of vulnerability to become a person who looks more like Jesus, who become a person who loves God with everything and loves each other as themselves. Take Paul, for example. We're reading uh, Romans. Paul was a, um, he was born in 6 AD to Jewish parents as a Roman citizen. He got accepted to like, you know, the dream school under the dream professor, right? Gamaliel was his name. He becomes a Pharisee, and then he has an opportunity to step up to the plate, right? There's this weird grassroots movement of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who claims to be the Messiah, and Paul's like, well, that's an enemy of God, so we need to, we need to shut that down. And so he becomes the most zealous. He becomes a terrorist of the church, removing wives and husbands, removing husbands and, or parents and children, killing people. That's Paul. 
right? He thought he was doing it in, 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 in God's will, and then eventually he's on his way to the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, and what happens? He encounters the presence of God. He sees God, right? Then we know that he went on missionary journeys. He went on three missionary journeys, and he wrote a lot of letters of the New Testament. A lot of letters. Romans is one of them, the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all, and more. I don't want to list them all because I might forget one and that would be awkward. Uh, so he's writing all these letters in the New Testament, right? So he has this conversion, and he has his missionary journeys and his letters. But one thing that I think is really key and important to understanding Paul is the time between those two events. Because Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And then guess what? He ran away. He left Jerusalem, went to Arabia for three years. Three years. We were not a church three years ago. Came back to Jerusalem for 15 days, realized that all his previous coworkers still hated his guts, left again, and scholars estimate that he was gone for an additional seven to 10 years between his conversion and his first missionary journey, which was, by the way, before he wrote any single letter, the best estimations of that 11 to 15 years passed between that time. Paul met the presence of God. 11 to 15 years later, he starts his first missionary journey. Guess how long from the conversion to the letter of the Romans it was? 22 years. Paul met Jesus. 22 years later, he wrote Romans. Now, my point is this. Did Paul write Romans right when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? No. Do you think Paul was ready to write Romans right when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? No, absolutely not. 22 years of being formed, of praying, of understanding the Hebrew scriptures and how they find their fulfillment and their climax in Jesus of Nazareth, and he's not just the Messiah of Israel, he's actually the Messiah of the entire world, and so now my life is a living sacrifice for the God who we serve, and it's in him that we move and live and have our being. 22 years. My point is this, becoming more like Jesus is a long process of formation. You are always becoming someone. You're always becoming someone. Spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. It is a human thing. Every decision is a deposit into who you're becoming. One day you're gonna wake up. Well, every day I hope you wake up. But one day you're gonna wake up and you're gonna realize that you've become someone. And you may or may not like who that person is. You ever met like a, a really old person? And I'm talking like really old, like at least 40 or something. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I will say, a couple weeks ago, we had an AGC youth uh, party, and I overheard one of the students say, yeah, he's old, he's at least 40. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> no, I'm talking like 90 plus. We'll just, we'll just throw the ball, like, I'm gonna stop talking. Like, I'm talking a person who has been, a, a person who is like 90 plus years old, and, and they are, they are kind of like that stereotypical, just cynical, old person, grouch, mean, closed off, from the world, they have walls up in their hearts. They didn't wake up one day and think to themselves, you know what, I really wanna be a super old grouch who's closed off to the world and who dies alone. They didn't think that and say, that's who I'm gonna be now. It was a lifetime of decisions, a lifetime of thoughts, a lifetime of practices, of relationships, of living lives that led them to that point. Now, on the other hand, have you ever met a person, really old person, 90 plus, who's just beaming with life? I mean, they've been through it, but they know God. 
it's like you bump into them and peace and love and joy just overflows from their hearts. They did not wake up at that age and say, you know what? I want to be filled with all the fullness of God. I want to be filled with life and joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. No, it was a lifetime of decisions, of thoughts, of practices, of relationships, surrounding themselves with the truth of scripture. You are always becoming someone. The lie is that people don't change. Ah, people don't change, I know who they are. That's a lie. You are always becoming someone. So today we're gonna ask ourselves this, these two questions. First, what is formation? And second, how are we formed? What is formation? How are we formed? Those are the two questions we're gonna talk about today. First of all, what is formation? And it's important to understand this. I know this really isn't an answer, but I'm gonna make it an answer. Formation is always happening. Like I said earlier, formation is not a spiritual thing or a Christian thing, it is a human thing. All you have to do is wake up, go about your normal life, and you are being formed by something or someone. And the most powerful formation machine is our culture. We're being formed by our job, our friends, our decisions, our thoughts, our phone, our eating decisions, working decisions, and spending decisions. You literally don't have to do anything for the rest of your life, and you are being formed into something or someone. The enemy wants us to think that people don't change and that the culture isn't forming us. But our country, uh, really any country, by the way, our culture, so there's the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then there's what the patristic fathers call the anti-Trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They are working together to form us into something, to deform us from the image of Christ and form us into their own image of chaos and death and anxiety. And how do they do that? Our culture forms us by, uh, this is just a little bit of a list. Next slide. A little list. Our culture forms us from faith to doubt. We live in an age where we are all like Pilate. What is truth? What is truth? You know? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Secular humanism says there is no absolute. The only authority is my personal experience, but I can't even trust that because as all psychologists are telling us, we have multiple persons inside our one person. So there is no ultimate authority, which leads into fear, into existential crisis, into doubt, into anxiety, to where we say, how do I know anything at all? Our culture is experts at forming us from faith to doubt. Our culture is an expert at forming us from love to insecurity. If you've ever been hurt before, you know that it's easier to put up walls than to trust somebody again. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are working together and handing you the next brick to place on top of the wall of your own heart. People want love, but they don't know how to get it because our world tells them to lay down other people's lives for themselves rather than to lay down your own life for others. Our culture is good at forming us from community to individualism. I think this one's pretty self-explanatory. Individualism, it looks really nice. It does, I'm gonna be honest, it looks amazing. I gotta do my own thing. I don't have any responsibility or accountability to anybody else. I can be, I can, I can just do whatever I want. That is a nice appeal. The problem is, in the end, you will end up being lonely. You know that we are the most connected generation to ever walk history, and yet, statistics show, we are the most lonely people in the world right now. Why? Because we're being formed from community to individualism. We're also being formed from contributing to consumerism. You know that in Genesis 1 and 2, all humans were made to co-rule with God forever. 
to contribute, to create, to harness the power of God and bring about life and joy and families and cities and art and all of this stuff, that's the design of humanity. And yet what are we being formed into? Give me, give me, I want, I want. Consumerism, not contributing. And then finally, our culture is forming us from rest to exhaustion. Again, this one's pretty self-explanatory. When's the last time you asked somebody, hey, how are you doing today? And they're like, man, I'm just rested. I just feel really good. We're all laughing because it's not happening, right? Why? Because what culture do we live in? Bigger is better, more is better, do more, otherwise you're not needed in society. What kind of a person are we becoming? We're gonna become machines that just produce all this stuff and we're gonna just work ourselves to the bone. Our culture is forming us from rest into exhaustion. That's how our culture is forming us. Now, this is subtle. This is subtle, right? It's easy to think that because I believe that there is a God, because I believe like, uh, things like abortion is wrong, things like the sexual ethic of today's society is askew, therefore I'm not being conformed to this age. But it is not that simple. Yes, those are things that we should hold to, but also the culture is, is forming us in subtle ways. If it was that easy, then the devil wouldn't be doing his job because that's not deceit, that's obvious. Everything is forming us. Right before World War II, yeah, right before World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a scholar and theologian, he grew up in a really prestigious family. His parents were uh, professors, a lot of his siblings were professors. He was going on, I think he wrote his dissertation at like 19, which is like, what, what did you do at 19? Didn't write a dissertation, that's for sure. Unless you did, in which case I'm so sorry, but <laughs> that's how I feel. Uh, he wrote a dissertation, a brilliant, brilliant guy. Anyway, his family was not believers, and, and he came to know the Lord, and he realized that the church, the Lutheran church at the time, was compromising with the political ideologies of the day. And so he realized that what was happening in culture was forming people. And so he wanted to form people in a different way. So he created this like seminary and this kind of like community group where he took 150 students, and he kind of went into these like, it wasn't like a, it was like a remote area kind of by a lake and all this stuff. Anyway, his book, Life Together, is like the explorations of that community. So he taught them uh, theological classes. They did life together. And one time, his brother came over to him, and he was like, you need to, you need to come back home. You need to, you're, you're kind of making a disgrace of the family name. Just get a professor a job. Get a wife. Like, just, just say what you need to say to appease the church at the time. And he took his brother in a canoe, and they rode across the lake. And across the lake of where they were, there was a Hitler for youth camp. And he took his brother up on top of a hill and he pointed at his community, his seminary, and he pointed at the Hitler for youth camp. And he said, this has to be stronger than that. This, the formation to look like Jesus, has to be stronger than that. And in Bonhoeffer's age, it was the formation that was very explicit with the Hitler for Youth and all these ideologies that were taking over at the time. In our age, our formation to Jesus has to be stronger than the formation that happens in the world just by waking up. What is formation? First, formation is always happening. Second, here's the actual definition. Formation is the process by which we become like Jesus. Formation is the process by which we become like Jesus. Look again at Romans 12, verse two. Do not be conformed to this age. This must be stronger than that. But be transformed. In Greek, the word for transformed right there is metamorpheo, which is where we get our word metamorphosis, which 
throwback to ninth grade biology. Metamorphosis is the process by which a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. In other words, the thing changes completely. It is transformed from a caterpillar into a butterfly. They were one thing. They were transformed, metamorphosed, into another thing. I don't think I said that word right, but that's what I'm thinking about. Into another kind of thing completely. What Paul is saying is that the process of following Jesus is a complete transformation that takes a lifetime to get to. He uses the same word elsewhere in Romans 8, and this will be, these next texts will be on the slide. Romans 8. The end of Romans 8, verse 29, he says, for those he pre, uh, foreknew, he also determined them to be conformed, same word, conformed into the image of his son. Next passage, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, there's the presence of God, and are being what? Transformed into that same image from glory to glory. We're becoming disciples of formation. Next slide, Galatians 4, 19. I am, Paul says this to the Galatians. I'm again, I'm again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Spiritual formation is the process by which we become like Jesus. It is a long lifetime of a, a process. Second, so that's what is formation. Second, how are we formed? How are we formed? The word discipleship, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of a tired word in American evangelicalism. Typically, discipleship just means filling your schedule with more church stuff. Typically, discipleship just means sitting down once a week, if that, over a cup of coffee, cracking open a subpar Christian living book, talking a little bit about Jesus, but mainly complaining about how hard life is and how annoying that one person is. That's what discipleship has been relegated to. And it's sad. And I'm pretty sure that when Jesus said, go and make disciples, that's not what he had in mind. Most scholars agree that a better word than discipleship is actually the word apprenticeship. Why? Because an apprentice learns the theory and then does the stuff, right? Think about nursing school. When I was in college, uh, I had knew a lot of people who were in the nursing program, four-year degree, and the first couple years, freshman, sophomore year, is mainly what? Mainly classes. You're studying, you're studying, you're studying. You're, the nursing students at my school were always in, the li- like always in the library, just always studying. It's like, what are they doing? They're learning the theory, they're learning the practice, they're learning the science, they're learning how to do it, and then by their junior and senior year, where are they? In the hospital, clinicals. What are they doing? They're learning how to do it. They are becoming a disciple of a nurse who's gone before them in order for them to be able to do the things that the nurse does that they want to do. Discipleship in our minds is just like, okay, yeah, cool, go make disciples, like get more people into church or or just do more churchy stuff, but that's not it at all. Discipleship to Jesus is more like, yeah, we learn, we fill our mind with the truth of scripture, but we also go out and we do. We, we, we learn how to follow Jesus in community. We learn how to follow Jesus in our day-to-day lives. We learn how to do all of these things. And so we've talked about this before, and so I preached on this a few months ago, but I'm not gonna apologize. Scholars, theologians, a lot of people have identified three primary ways that people change. Three primary ways that people change. Because if the goal, hear me out, if the goal is to, of discipleship is to become a person of love who loves God with everything and who loves your neighbor as yourself, The process is discipleship. 
That discipleship, that transformation, that metamorphosis, that requires change. So then the question is, well, how do we change? How are we formed? Theologians and scholars have identified three ways that we're primarily formed, and we call it the triangle of transformation, which I like the alliteration, so you're welcome. Triangle of transformation. First, first primary way that we are changed is the truth that we believe or don't believe. Everybody believes a story about themselves. Everybody believes a story about God. Everybody believes a story about something, and there is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there are lies. Think about this. You hold fast to the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You repeat it over and over. You write it down. You memorize it. You live it out. It's on your mirror when you wake up. It's in, your car, it's in your car when you see it. You are constantly reminded of the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That will change you. If you believe genuinely that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, you will be a different person in a year from now than you are today. But if you believe the lie, well, God is just slightly disappointed in you. God really wishes that you would just be a little bit better. God is super disappointed that you haven't gotten over that yet. That will change you. For worse, you will be a different person a year from now than you are today. What we fill our minds, our souls, and our bodies with, whether it's truth or lies, will change us. Which is why, here at Ankeny Gospel Church, we have equipping hour. What is equipping hour? Filling our minds with the truth. This is why we open up the scriptures and look at them every single week. Why? It's because that we're filling our ears, our bodies, our souls with the scripture. So that when we look at the kingdom of heaven as Jesus announced it in Matthew 5 through 7, we realize that God blesses those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And over and over again, the truth that we listen to, the truth that we see, the truth that we live out will change us. Because we know that the lies that we listen to, the lies that we live out, it does change us. The first primary way that people change is through truth. Second way that people primarily change is community. I've heard this phrase a lot, if you wanna look at your future, look at your friends, right? My dad always used to say, if you sit by an onion for long enough, you'll start to smell like an onion. His point was this, if you surround yourself with the wrong people, with the wrong community, with bad community, you will start to look like them. Now, there's a way that the enemy uses this and there's the way that the Lord uses this. The enemy uses community to deform us. How? By either putting us in the wrong community or by isolating us. Every single story I've heard, not every single, majority of stories I've heard of people, when they're recounting their life, some of the loneliest, I'm sorry, some of the lowest moments in their lives was when they felt alone. If you feel alone, if you are alone, you will change, that will change you. That's how the enemy uses it. He wants to isolate us, make us think that we're on our own. But if we follow the spirit and the scriptures, 
And we say that, no, our community is, we actually have a new family, a family. Not like I see you on Sunday morning and say hi, a family. That's closer than your actual blood relatives. We are put in the family of God. That's our community. And guess what? That's who we'll be with for the rest of eternity, so you better like each other. God puts us into his family. Christ is the head. We are his children. In Hebrews, we are called Jesus' siblings. We are the very body of Christ, Ephesians 1 talks about. So the enemy uses community to isolate us, and the spirit puts us in community with a family who's there for each other, who loves one another, who puts the needs of others above the needs of the self. Truth will change you. Community will change you. And then finally, we are changed by our practices, by our practices. Um, This is just true. It's observable that if you start doing something, you'll want to do that thing more and more, right? I think of somebody who loves to work out. I bet when most people started, actually probably when everybody started working out, they hated it, right? It's like, why am I doing this? It's miserable. I kind of feel nauseous. My arms hurt. My legs hurt. Like, this is terrible, right? But the more you do it, you can become a person who can't not work out. If you do it over and over and over again, you're gonna love it. Acquired tastes. I love coffee, but I'm convinced nobody actually likes coffee the first time they drink it. What happens if you drink it over and over and over again, you're gonna start to love it. If you have a midnight snack every night, and then you have it the next night, and then you have it the next night, then all of a sudden, 11 p.m. rolls around and you're like, I need a midnight snack. Why? Because you have become the type of person who over the long haul, after doing things over and over and over again, that's what you do. Bad patterns. If you start to watch a certain thing and you're okay with that, then you start watching again and then you start watching something else and then you start watching another show and then your consciousness is seared and then eventually you become the type of person who has no filter over what they watch listening to stuff. If you start listening to this podcast or that podcast and it's fine, but it's a little, you know, it kind of gives you this sense of anxiety and fear rather than a peace, which the scriptures promise, you start doing that again and again, then you become the type of person who, who has no filter over what they listen to. Think of addictions, patterns in your life that you can't break. What is that? That's you doing one thing over and over and over again until you can't not do it. That's how the enemy uses practices. Now, how does the spirit use practices? Well, first of all, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So if there is a sin, if there is an addiction, if there is a crutch that you cannot get out of, you can't on your own. You can with the spirit. Jesus lays out three practices in the Sermon on the Mount. The scriptures lay out more practices that the church has since then taken and they've expanded on it and they typically call it spiritual disciplines. The ones that Jesus lays out are prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. If you pray just a little bit for a day and then tomorrow you pray a little bit more and then tomorrow you pray a little bit more and the next day and the next day, you will become a type of person who can't not pray. You will become a type of person who can just join the chorus of Paul when he says, pray without ceasing. If you fast one week, then a month later you fast again, but then you do it every other week, then you do it every week, you will become a person whose taste buds are tuned to the banquet of heaven, who actually hunger and thirst for righteousness rather than for your own fleshly desires. 
if you give to the poor once, that'll be helpful. But if you give over and over again, as Jesus says so freely and frequently that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing, you will become a person of selfless, sacrificial, generous love who looks at people not for what they can give you, but who looks at people in the image of God. What you do matters. What you do matters. The enemy can take this and turn it into two different things. He can turn it into legalism or he can turn it into antinomianism or um, consumerism, I should say. If you think that practices alone will make you right with God, you're wrong. Resting one day a week is not gonna make you right with God. Fasting once a week is not gonna make you right with God. Even having a prayer rhythm and sitting in silence and solitude is not going to make you right with God. Rather what they are, that would be legalism. Rather what they are, they are, they are ways that we put ourselves at the disposal of God's hand. If I wanna say, Lord, here's my life, take it, I have to follow Jesus. I can't just sit in class and learn the theory all the time and not actually do anything. On the other hand, some people say that for freedom Christ has set us free. Everything is lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. And Paul clearly destroys that in 1 Corinthians. He says, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Sure, can you eat that? Can you drink that? Can you watch that? Can you listen to that? Sure, all things are lawful, but not everything's profitable because you will become the type of thing that you look at. You, we become what we behold. We love what we look at. Every decision is a deposit into what type of person we are becoming. And according to Paul, we should not be conformed to this age. It's subtle. It's there, but it is subtle. And if you think you see it, you don't see it, because then it, would be, it wouldn't be deceit. Rather, we should be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So how we change primarily is through truth, through community, and practices. Now, as I said, if we do this on our own strength, will we be able to change? Maybe maybe a little bit of behavior modification here and there, but who is the ultimate agent of change? The Holy Spirit. So is change active or is change passive? Can I change my own life and can I on my own become a person of love that Jesus calls me to become? Or do I just let go and let God and just whatever happens, happens and I have no say in anything? Neither, right? Neither. If we say that I can change my heart, my desires, my mind, my motives in my own effort, and I can earn the favor of God on my own, we are misguided. And if I say, I don't have to do anything, I got saved 20 years ago and God zapped me with the Holy Spirit and his presence and now I just waiting, am waiting till I die. We are, we are dead wrong according to the scriptures. But what is it? It's the narrow road. It's the narrow road of saying, Lord, you are not, Dallas Willard has this famous line, God is not opposed to effort, he is opposed to earning. If we try to earn our discipleship, earn the love of God, earn the, 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 the end of our aim, which is to love God and love others, then we won't change at all. And God expects us to put forth effort, to remind ourselves of the truths of scripture, to memorize scripture, to come to equipping hour, to put ourselves in community, to be in a small group, to be in the church community, and to actually do, practice what Jesus said to do. So is the primary agent of change us or is the Holy Spirit? And the answer is, of course, it's both. Because we are, we are made in the image of God and we are filled with his Holy Spirit. 
So all that to say, we want to become, at AGC, we want to become disciples of presence, formation, and mission who seek the presence of God, are formed into the image of Jesus, and who live on mission for the renewal of our city. Last week we talked about presence. This week we talked about formation. Next week we're gonna hear about mission. Now if all this sounds interesting to you, or you're like, how, how do we do this? I wanna do this. This is exactly, the formation part, I mean, typically the formation part, this is exactly what our small groups are designed for. Small groups are designed to, to do this together, where we seek the presence of God, but primarily we're formed by the stories of scripture, by the practices that we do, and we are in community, keeping each other accountable. You can't be a Christian in isolation. Augustine says you cannot have God as your father without the church as, you, of, without the church as your mother. If you are living your life as a disciple of Jesus on your own with no accountability, no responsibility, and no church guiding you, then you are not following the Jesus of the scriptures. Jesus does not take us out of community. He puts us into it. So with that, one of the ways we're formed every week is through communion. We do communion every week intentionally so here at Ankeny Gospel Church. We do it because week after week, by taking the bread and drinking the cup, we are forming our hearts. We are forming our minds. We're literally forming our taste buds to see Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he told us to do. And so I'm gonna pray, but at the end of my prayer, if you are a, if you are a disciple, you are following Jesus, then this table invitation is for you. And if you're not, then I would, I would just uh, respectfully invite you to just sit and let the cup pass and not take of the, the bread and uh, eat of, not eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I'm gonna pray, and when I'm done praying, I'm gonna invite you guys to come forward and we can be formed in the image of Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. You promise to guide us in your truth and you say that your word is truth. I'm reminded of the disciples right now, Lord, in the Gospel of John, when Peter said, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us with your presence and you would form us into your image. Holy Spirit, I pray against any deceit and any lies and any temptations from the enemy. I ask that you would renew our minds. I ask that you would form us to look more like your son. We pray all this in your son's name and by the power of the spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.